Lord, we just thank you so much once again that we have the opportunity to be together before your word. Lord, what amazing gift it is that you have given us your word and your spirit. And so, Lord, I just ask you to teach us, teach us in this moment what you would have. Tear down what needs to be torn down in our lives. Help us to see clearly those things and build up what needs to be built up. Lord, you are the only one that knows that. And so we ask that you would do that work. And Lord, that we would fall in love with you more and more as we see the beauty of what you have done for us. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so I got to tell you all about 30 years ago, um, I grew up in the city of Hot Springs. About 30 years ago, uh, we moved out to the big city of Royal. Um, we have five acres, and we built a little house out there. And at that time, the only thing there was Brady Mountain One Stop and a post office and raised our kids. But, you know, I just had this vision. My dad was a country boy. and We would go down the country on weekends. But my, my experience wasn't generally being in the country, and I wanted to raise my kids in a more country setting. And so... Um, I'd never had any experience whatsoever with snakes. And one day I was sitting on the back patio and I was on my chair sitting out in the sun enjoying it. And all of a sudden this black snake, which I realize now it was not poisonous, comes flying across the patio. Well, I'm thinking I've got to protect my children. Okay, I'm sure it wasn't poisonous. And so I don't remember if I went and got the hoe or the shovel. And what I didn't know is when you chop a snake, it keeps moving. I didn't, I didn't realize that you could just like, if you cut the head off and give it time, eventually. And so I kept chopping and chopping until the snake was basically mincemeat on my back patio because it was still moving. And I didn't know any better. And I laugh at myself now about that. But I say that because I think it's an illustration of what we're going to be looking at tonight um, in Romans 7 about what sin is like in our lives, that Christ has cut the head off of sin. We've seen that. However, there's still evidence, there's effect, it's there, and the more we focus on it, the more it has power in our lives. And knowing what Christ has done and learning to not focus on that sin is part of the victory, and we're going to see some of that tonight. So I always like to laugh at myself about the snake story, but I think there's, a, there's not a perfect illustration, but a little bit of an illustration there. So let's review for a second where we've been. Paul has established that the law can't save us in chapters 3 through 5. It can't sanctify us in chapter 6, and it can no longer condemn a believer in chapter 7, 1 through 6. So now he is going to establish that it can convict both believers and unbelievers of their sin. And we're going to see that in 7 through 13. But it cannot deliver from sin, and that's going to be in 14 through 25. By New Testament times, the Jewish rabbis had summed up the scriptural law in 613 commandments comprised of 248 mandates and 365 prohibitions. Now, how would you like to live under that law and try to keep it? It had become a consuming way of life, especially for the very legalistic Jews like the Pharisees. Paul has just said we have been released from the law. 
So we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So now he's going to come to the next objection, because remember, this is, this is all part of the arguments. And so when we look down and we see that we're going to look at verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Okay. Um, on the contrary, there's a value. The law itself is not sin. He says, For I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. So we see immediately that it's through the law that we have knowledge of sin. We saw that in Romans 3.20 as well. And so here's our first truth. We need to know our sin. And God's law reveals our sin. We need to know our sin. God's law reveals my sin. This is a very important part of sharing the gospel. There's self-destruction and eternal loss in not knowing our sin. I'm not speaking of knowing sin by experiencing it. I'm speaking of the clear measure, the window, the perspective on sin that only God's word and his law can give. That's how we know. And that's why it's significant what Paul uses as an illustration. He now goes deeper to the indwelling sin nature and how it responds to God in the law. Now, in 7 through 8, you will see that Paul is going to use coveting. He says, when he talks about, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Okay. So, why would Paul use coveting? That was one of your questions on your homework. And I heard someone say this, because it's a command that is an inner thing. One we would not normally consider a sin. A sin. Murder, yes. Adultery, yes. You're harming someone else, it's obvious. But coveting happens in here. No one else would know it. And who are you really hurting? Yourself. That's why we need the law to reveal sin, because when you go to the deeper places of the heart, it's a different story. Um, needless, let's just say the Sermon on the Mount, that's the whole point, that we don't necessarily judge our hearts because they're very deceptive and we can justify what's going on in our heart. And he said that sin took an opportunity, and so he's like personifying sin. Sin here looks like a person or a power looking for opportunities. Now, this is more about the sin nature, that old nature that dwells in our flesh. Our sin nature is aroused by law, and here's why. Let's think about this. It's aroused by law because we want control, and we rebel against anything that takes control from us. And, and may I add, ladies, I, when I was working through this, I thought about us. We, we like control for a lot of reasons. It gives us security. We want to know how things are going to happen. Um, when you raise your children, if you have children, you raise your children, you are in control. You have to be in control. You have to manage everything. And then when they grow up and start to become teenagers and adults and you have to let go of that control, can I see a, get a witness on how hard that is? Okay. And so we deal with control. 
And, and sometimes we see it even as a good thing. But at the heart of it, control and that need for control rebels against God. Our sin nature is aroused by the law because of that. Now, coveting is really about desire, having a desire. And so in our culture, and this is so interesting today, especially in our culture, because desires are the measure of right and wrong in our culture. Even in our view of reality, of our own truth. That's what we see in our culture today. But our own desires are not the measure of what is true and false or right and wrong. The law comes in and it says there's a standard outside of us and above us. It is God's will and God himself is the standard. And so here's our next truth. <clears throat> God is the measure of what's good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. And I'll say that again. God is the measure of what's good and bad, right and wrong, true and false. He wants us to know the difference in those things, and he reveals that through his word and his law. The law contradicts the sovereignty of my own desires. The law contradicts the sovereignty of my own desires. It challenges the root of our sinful condition, which is to be our own God. The law challenges the root of our sinful condition, which is to be our own God. And the most important demands of God's revealed law are internal, not external. Now let me read you 9 through 12. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So, verse 7, the law reveals sin. Verse 8, the law arouses sin. And then 9 and 10 tells us that the law ruins and destroys a sinner's self-righteousness. It destroys that. Like, you think you're doing pretty good, and then you come face-to-face -face with the law, and that's what he means by I died. I realize I can't measure up. So, <clears throat> let me give you a verse that Paul wrote in Philippians that goes along with this. He realized that all his accomplishments, when he really came to see, were rubbish. And so Paul says this in Philippians 3, 7 through 8. He says, after he's just finished talking about all the confidence that he could have in the flesh, circumcised on the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and all that. Then he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ uh, that comes from God and is by faith. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And so Paul himself realized that all of those commands that he thought he was so great at keeping, ultimately he really wasn't keeping them. Okay? 
And then in 9 through 12, it says, sin seized the opportunity and deceived me. And so here's our next truth. Sin will always work to deceive you. Sin will always work to deceive you. Now I'm going to give you two ways that that happens. How sin deceives you with the law anyway. One is the thought, well, I can't keep this. There's no hope for me. And so you become hopeless. And so when you become hopeless that you can't measure up, it leads to self-indulgence. Hopelessness to keep the law leads to self-indulgence. It's kind of like if I want to, I'm not, I'm trying to eat healthy and I go in there and I eat, you know, a bite of the candy bar and I'm like, oh, well, I already ate the bite. I might as well eat the whole thing. It's kind of that same thing. You know, I can't do it. So I might as well just go ahead. All right. That's one deception. All right. The second deception that can happen and Satan knows how you are and he will tailor this is you can keep this law. If I just work hard enough, I'm as good as the next person. And so that hopefulness that you can do it leads to self-righteousness. That's the other form of deception on the other extreme. Sin can be deceptive either way. We must see our sin and our inability to meet God's standard, but not stop there. The gospel goes on, and the gospel brings hope. Another has kept the law for you. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. That's what the gospel is. So you start with seeing your sin, but you don't stop there. Verse 12 said that God's law, and here's our next truth, is holy, righteous, and good. God's law is holy, righteous, and good. God's law is holy, righteous, and good. That's what verse 12 says. And then 13 says, Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might be utterly sinful. Now that's a mouthful. But let's try to drill down on that a little bit. The remedy for sin's deception is the truth of the gospel. The first part of the gospel is you are a sinner. That's the work of the law to reveal the truth of your sin because the natural man doesn't see it. The outward we can see, but not the inward. But the law and the gospel then carries on to give us a hope and a remedy. That's the beauty of it. That's the purpose of it. It has a purpose. It's not everything in the gospel, but it's part of it, okay? Now, we're going to move to the second section, which is one of the most, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, the most disputed passages in Scripture. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage for you. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Sold as a slave to sin, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Okay, let's see if that's how far I was going. Now I'm going to keep going. Okay. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Wow, that was a lot. Did y'all have fun bouncing back and forth between that? All right, as long as we have record, we see that interpreters have disagreed whether the I in these verses refers to Paul or someone else in general, because I was a rhetorical device in those days, okay? But more importantly, the argument is, is this divided man a Christian or a non-Christian? If you think I is Paul, was it Paul before or after he met Jesus in salvation? One side says the person is in too much bondage to sin to be a believer, 14, 18, and 24. The other side says the person has too much love for the things of God and too much hatred of sin to be an unbeliever, 15, 19, 21. Four positions have generally been put forth, and I'm going to briefly touch on these, and then we're going, to, we're going to drill down on one. One view is that the man is Paul before his salvation, the unsaved man. He can't be a believer because he said, I'm a slave to sin. Remember how we talked about you're no longer a slave to sin in verse 14? And he just said in 6, 17, 18, you used to be slaves to sin. The other thing is, he says, nothing good lives in me. In verse 18, well, the Holy Spirit lives in him. And then 24, wretched man, who will rescue me? That's, that's all the views of an unchristian. You can see the support for that. Um, the second view, I'm going to give you four. The man is a carnal Christian, a Christian in immature, unsurrendered state. Focus Because the focus is so much on me, I, I. And it's, it's, a weak, it's a weakness. The problem with this argument is that it kind of promotes a two-stage Christianity. You're saved, immature, and then later you become mature, okay? And we know that there's growth, but it's a continual process. The third view, the man is a person who is awakened by the Spirit, but not saved, just under conviction. And then the fourth view is the man is a mature Christian and... Um, He's describing the continuing conflict with sin, and some people would call this realistic Christianity. And I'm going to teach from this view, that it's a mature believer. And that's not because I'm an expert, but this makes sense to me. I think there's value in it, and I think I can bring some value with this view. You can land wherever you think, but I think there's going to be value for us from this view. So I don't know what, what it really is, but if we can find value in the Word of God, then let's go for the value. Let's dig for some gold, and I think there's some really good gold here. Uh, Paul uses I 46 times. Only a mature believer would experience and be concerned about such deep struggles of the heart, mind, and conscience. The more you see God's holiness and goodness, the more you see your own sinfulness. 
You know where the perfect example of that is? Isaiah 6. Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. And Isaiah was a prophet, a spokesman for God. And he has the vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And he has this amazing vision. And you know what he says in, in, in just the beauty and the power of the holiness of God? Woe is me, for I am undone, which means disintegrating. And it's interesting that he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And it's so interesting that that's the thing he says because that was his strength. He was a spokesman for God, and yet he saw, even in his strength, his sin. And so the closer you are to the Lord, the more you're in the presence of his holiness, the more you see your own sin. So I think that's part of the reason that Paul is wrestling with this. Only a new creation in Christ lives with the tension of sin against righteousness. Paul is showing here another result of justification, which is hatred towards sin. So here's the truth. Hatred towards your sin is evidence of salvation. Hatred towards your sin, your own sin, your own sin, is evidence of salvation. So how do you see your sin? Or do you see your sin? The greatest argument against this being a Christian is verse 14. I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. Because at least six times he has already said in chapter 6 that we're free from sin, the slavery to sin. In six in verses 6, 17, 18, 19, 20, 22. But in chapter 6, verse 12, even though he said over and over, we saw this before, you know, you've been set free. He gives the command, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And in Galatians 5.1, he says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm and do not be subject to the yoke of slavery. So there must be some sense in which we can choose to put ourselves under the bondage of sin. Otherwise, he would not be warning us to do it. If you're free from sin, you're never going to have an issue with it again. Why would he warn us to not submit to it in other places? So obviously, on some level, we can choose to put ourselves under the bondage of sin. Chapter 6 is written to show believers that they will win the war. Verse 14, sin will not have dominion over you. You're going to win the war. Chapter 7 is written to show that there in that war, there's going to be tactical defeats. It's there to help you understand yourself and not fall into the hopelessness of unbiblical perfectionism. This expectation, and, and in the past, there were, there were some strands of Christianity that promoted that you're set free, you're not going to have this again, you're going to be free from sin, and so forth. Well, we all know the reality of that. That leads you to some hopelessness because you're still going to battle your sin. So here's another truth. A Christian will not live in continual defeat from sin. A Christian will not live in continual defeat from sin. Nor will they live in complete victory. A Christian will not live in continual defeat from sin. Nor will they live in continual victory. The key is how do you respond when you do fail? That's always the key. 
I want, and I, and I thought of this illustration. I, I want to use, I'm going to use a couple of illustrations here. Think about the children of Israel. We, we've, ma- we've made a connection between God bringing them out, setting them free from bondage, to him setting us free from the bondage of sin, right? Okay, so they were, they were brought out of Egypt, set free, brought through the wilderness to go in and take the promised land, the fruitful land. But when they got there and they sent the spies in and there was all this conflict, they got their eyes on that, they got fearful, and they, they were too scared to go in and do it. And so they had to wander. But then when the time came 40 years later after the judgment on that generation and they, they were given, God gave them the land. God said, here it is. I've set you free. I'm giving you this land. But what did they have to do? They had to go in and battle and take the land. It was their land. God had given it. He had promised it. But they had a part. They had to battle to take the land. And I think there's a great illustration for us. The same thing is true. He has set us free. He has brought us out. He has given us the, the, the land, so to speak, of the life. But we have to battle to take it. The enemy has taken a lot of ground in our lives with sins. Sometimes we have given that ground. And the longer you've given that ground, and it's been, the stronger the battle is sometimes to overcome it. But it doesn't mean that you won't, but you do have to battle. And I think that's a great thing. And then for us to realize anyway, so we're not discouraged with the battle. But then we talked about how new life in Christ, you're to be fruitful. You're to produce fruit. But the problem is, ladies, we live in a very hostile environment. It is not a fruit-producing environment that we live in as far as spiritual fruit, okay? Um, We are to bear fruit in this worldly climate. It is inhospitable to holiness, okay? Therefore, we have to do all we can to make choices that will enable and enhance our environment to produce that fruit. I'm a, I already confessed I'm a would want to be gardener. I'm not good at it, and one of the main reasons I'm not good at it is I don't I don't go out there and tend to the garden every day. You have to go look at your garden every day. You got to weed it. You got to water it. You got to check out your plants. You got to right. I guess I don't know. I've never done that, but that's what they tell me. <laughs> one of these days, maybe. The same thing is true for us. How can we expect to produce fruit if we are not tending to it every day, recognizing our sin, um, doing things to give us the environment as much as we can control to produce fruit? Let's think about what that might be. How we spend our time, what we watch, what we listen to, the people we surround ourselves with. Now, now, granted, we have jobs, we have responsibilities. We, we might be around unbelievers all day long, and that is a mission field. But in those times when we make choices about what TV shows we watch, what movies we see, those places that we do have choices, it's on us to feed and water and give the right environment, okay? And a lot of times we're wanting fruit, and we're not doing our part, kind of like how I am with being a gardener, Okay. We can't control everything, but we're accountable for the things that we can control. We have to tend to it. We have to fertilize it with the word of God, spend time with the Lord in prayer, being outside in nature and being still before the Lord. All of those things help us to have an environment that is conducive to producing holiness. Okay, so here's our next truth that we get from this battle. I got a lot lot of truths tonight, okay? The Christian is both indwelt 
by the spirit and harassed by the flesh. The Christian is both indwelt by the spirit and harassed by the flesh. And we're going to see this in some of what he says in 14 through 24. We know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. So you see that inner battle. What I really want to do, I I don't do. I do what I hate. And if I do what I don't want to do, I agree the law is good. I recognize this standard. The law is good. I'm not doing it. I recognize that. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. You see this battle and this divided man? I know that nothing good lives in me. Now, notice he qualifies this because he does have the Holy Spirit in him, I would argue. I know that nothing lives in me that is in my sinful nature, that flesh that he's still in. He's qualifying that. He's not saying there's nothing good that lives in me at all. For I have the desire to do what's good. See his heart? That's that I have a desire, but I can't carry it out. I think he means perfectly in all things. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I, but sin living in me. So I find this law at work, okay? When I want to do good, evil is there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Now, would you say an unbeliever delighted in God's law? In my inner being, I want to do. But I see another law at work in the members of my body. There you go with that flesh that's not redeemed yet. Making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. So, the flesh, okay, the Christian is free. Wait, let me back up. We've got this battle. The mind and the inner being versus the members of the body, okay? The Christian is free from the dominion of sin but indwelt by remaining corruption. It's not a life of only failure or only victory. The two realities still exist. The flesh is not the opposite of the mind. It's the opposite of the renewed mind. The flesh is the opposite of the renewed mind. It's all about us taking the land and becoming who we are. Justification happens in a moment. It's right standing. We are declared righteous with Christ's righteousness. He is our ground for justification. But then immediately the process of transformation happens. It's a process, and it is transformation. That's what sanctification is. But Jesus is our power for sanctification. So he's our ground for justification, and he's our power for sanctification. Now, I want to use this because I read this and I thought it really made a great point. Beyond Paul, let's look at another example of a follower of Jesus who continued to struggle with sin. Take note, especially any of you who struggle with the same sin. Okay? And I'm going to talk about Peter. We start with Peter, one of the disciples. And he has this, you know, he follows Christ. He has this great moment in Matthew 16, 15, and 16. When Jesus says, you know, who do people say I am? And then he says, but who do you say I am? And he says, "Um, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus told Peter, blessed are you, Simon, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. So we, we see that God's spirit is revealing things to Peter and he's blessed. 
And then after the Last Supper in Mark 14, 27, Jesus said, You will all fall away, for as it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And Peter says, even if, and, and I believe he meant this with everything in him, even if all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said, You'll disown me three times. And he says in verse 31, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then Jesus is arrested. John and Peter follow him to uh, the high priest. John gets to go in. Peter's in the courtyard. And the servant girl says, you are with the Nazarene. In verse 68, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. And then the servant girl says again, this fellow was one of them. And in verse 70, he denies it. And those standing there the third time said, surely you're one of them. And he curses and swears, I don't know what you're talking about. The rooster crows. Jesus looks at him. And what does he do? He goes out and he weeps bitterly. You know what his sin was? Fear. Fear. He denied Christ because he was afraid. Well, then we see the Holy Spirit come. And a lot of people say, well, that was before the Holy Spirit. You know, Peter, Peter was a changed man after the Holy Spirit, and he was. Holy Spirit comes, and we're going we're gonna to see that next week. Chapter 8 is all about the, the Spirit. After Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. He gets up boldly in Acts 2 and preaches, and 3,000 people come to know the Lord. Now, would you say he's a mature Christian? He's on fire. He's doing great. He has this vision in Acts 10 um, where uh, he has a vision of the sheep that coming down with all these unclean animals, and the Spirit says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, I've never eaten anything unclean. And then verse 15 says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And that's when Cornelius comes, the Gentile. And so Peter gets freedom and sees that, that salvation is coming to the Gentiles. And he gets freedom from some of these dietary restrictions. And certainly the application is to the Gentiles, but he sees the difference there. And so now I want to take you. So this is Peter. All along, uh, moving along as a mature believer to Galatians 2, 11 through 16. Find Galatians 2, 11 through 16. And this is, this is on down the road after Paul has become a Christian. I think this was 14 years after Paul got saved. So this is quite a while. Peter's been walking with the Lord. Galatians 2, starting verse 11. Paul tells this story. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, that means the main church in Jerusalem, James, it didn't mean that James sent them there to do this, but they were from Jerusalem, the main church. Let's see. When certain men came from James, he, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But before they came, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Because remember, he's seen that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. They're, they're a part of it. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was what? Afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Remember, they were the Judaizers that thought you had to become circumcised before you could be a Christian. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. All right, let me see how far I'm going with that. Let's go a couple more verses. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. 
How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ, Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So Paul's standing firm on that, on the very thing that we're learning in Romans. And yet here's Peter, and because he was what? Afraid, he changed how he acted. So even the most mature believer can have tactical defeats by the same sin. All right, and in verse, in also in Galatians 5, 16, and 17, let me read that to you. Paul wrote, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Do you see that battle there? It's laid out very clearly. There's still going to be the battle. In this battle with our spirit and flesh, there are two extremes to avoid. Number one begins with pride. The cocky presumption that you're above sin because of Christ, what Christ has done and that is not a good place to be. You must move from pride to humility in the battle with our flesh. You're not above it. You've got to recognize it. The other uh, extreme is despair. Hopeless despair because you can never measure up. You must move from despair to hope. And we're going to see in verse 24 to 25 back in Romans. Let me get back over there. Both of these. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? There's the humility, your inability to do it on your own. Here's the hope. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the hope. That's in Romans chapter 7, 24 and 25. Yeah, that's where he takes you to both of those. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 tells us, For though we walk in in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Okay, we're still living in this flesh, but we don't wage war according to the flesh. Although a Christian cannot avoid living in the flesh, he should avoid walking according to the flesh in its sinful ways. There's a reason that the New Testament talks much of Christians as overcomers. To overcome comes from the word Nike. That's the root of it. It means to carry off the victory. Now, what does carrying off a victory imply? It implies that there's been what? A battle. You cannot be an overcomer unless you've been in a battle. So what is the battle? I'm going to tell you the battle is between the spirit and the flesh. And we're going to have to keep fighting that battle. The world is a battlefield, not a playground. An overcomer is one who rests and stands firm. It's equated with enduring. In Revelation, um, we see that some promises for overcomers. Most of these are in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Overcomers are promised the tree of life in 2.7. They're promised they're unharmed by the second death in chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation. 
Overcomers get to eat from the hidden manna in 2.17. Overcomers are given a new name in 2.17. Overcomers are given authority over the nations in 2.26. Overcomers are clothed in white garments, 3.5. And they're made a permanent pillar in the house of God, 3.12. And they sit with Jesus on his throne in 3.21. So I want to say this, it's the earnestness, earnestness of the war and the response to defeat that shows your Christianity, not perfection. When was the last time that you sinned and you were grieved that you failed? I mean, really grieved. How did you respond when you and, and maybe if you can't even remember the last time you were grieved over sin, that, that's a flag. That's a flag about how close you are to the Lord. How did you respond? Did you confess and repent? And here's the thing. That's the first step. And what change did you make to prepare for the next time of temptation? So when it comes, you're going to be ready. When you see that you have failed, take measure of that. What were the circumstances? What did you allow in your life? How did it catch you off guard? Why, why were you not ready that caused you to fail and make a change? If you were in a battle, you would do that. The key prep is in the mind and prayer, in your mind and prayer. And by the way, if this life is a battle, think about the spiritual warfare in um, Ephesians. What is the one weapon that we have? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is a weapon. That's one reason it's so great that you're here, immersing your mind in the Word of God, that you're working on your lesson, memorizing Scripture to use in that battle. It's, it's a huge thing, okay? Now, um, who, in verse 24, who will rescue me, okay? It says in 24, who will rescue me? And 25, um, not who has rescued me, okay? Let me look back at that. I've got that on here. What a wretched I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It says, who will rescue me? Because there's a place in there for what we're looking forward to, to a future deliverance. We have the power to help us in the battle here, but ultimately in the future, there's going to be a deliverance from this fleshly body, okay? And we're going to see this in Romans 8. I'm going to just read you a couple of verses. Um, this will probably be in our second part of Romans 8. He says, 8.22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have the Holy Spirit in us, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're going to see that we are adopted, but there is 
another fulfillment of that, of experience of it that is much greater when we are rescued from this flesh. And ladies, I'm going to tell you, it's one of the things, a lot of people say, I can't wait to get to heaven. I mean, obviously I want to see the Lord. That's number one. But asking all these questions, I don't think I'm going to care about that, but I am so looking forward to not battling my flesh and being disappointed in myself. I'm really looking forward to that. Nothing in between you and the Lord to hurt. So we have this hope that one day the battle with our flesh is going to be over. But Paul focuses in this chapter, and the focus for us now is staying in the battle. Continue to make war on sin, knowing that one day the war will be over and we're going to be victorious because Christ has procured the victory. We know that, but we still have to take the land, ladies, okay? And I want to leave you with two passages, let's look at, where Paul talks about this, his own battle and what he's doing and how we should be living right now. Let's go to Philippians 3, 12. We'll start at 12. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. And I think if Paul had to say this, how much more do we have to say this? Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. See, he's still taking the land. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God had called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see that? That was Paul. We got to press on. We got to become who we are because it's not done. And then in Hebrews 12, let's look at this one. He talks, well, whoever wrote Hebrews, not, not Paul. Let's go to Hebrew. Maybe it was Paul. We don't really know. Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Let's see what it says. We've just finished the great faith chapter of all the great people that were examples for us of the faith. And so he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Now, if we had no battle with sin, why would he say that? And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, here's your mindset, here's your mind, consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And he even says, in your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So if he made it all the way through, we can look to him as our example. So in this chapter, we are looking at Paul as a mature Christian dealing with the ongoing battle of sin. And we see in so many other places that this is a reality. We see the example of mature believers. And we see the exhortation that we have to stay in the battle. 
take the ground. You know, there were some Israelites that didn't take the ground and didn't get the ground. And they and you know what you know what happened? They lived, they lived with those Philistines or whoever was in the land. And you know what they did? They came and caused them to pull away from the Lord because they didn't put it to death. And we are called to put our sin to death. We have to be brutal. That's why I said, cut off your right hand. He really didn't mean your right hand. He said, do whatever it takes. Be brutal with it. Keep your environment what it needs to be so that you can win the victory. And take heart that if you do have a besetting sin, something that, you know, you think you've put it to death and then it rears its head again, it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It just means that you have to stay in the battle, you know. And it just really encouraged me to look at Peter in that respect and see that someone who lived and walked with Jesus and got, you, you know, used in such a huge way, he, he struggled with this same sin. And so we have to just remember that our job is to stay in the battle because it's so worth it for the joy set before us, for the joy set before us. Just keep that in mind. So... Let's pray, and uh, let's all go win some victories this week, ladies, and hopefully not have too many defeats. God, we thank you that you endured the cross, scorning its shame for us, Lord, that you resisted to the point of shedding your blood, um, that, God, you loved us, that, Christ, you loved us in such a way that you would do that. Help us to be strong. Help us to do battle in the small things, Lord, because so often that's what eats our lunch. Help us to do battle in the small things and therefore be prepared for the big battles. Help us to not be oblivious to our sin. Reveal it, Lord, that we would confess it and grieve over it, Lord. And I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.